As you take a seat, uh, I'll remind you, as Kyle said, that we are in our series that is going through the creed, uh, the one we say every Sunday morning, that is, the, the Nicene Creed, uh, or sometimes you may see it stylized or named the Nicene-Constantinople Creed, that is because this is something that formed over uh, hundreds of years in other contexts or settings. If you hear the creed, they may be referring to the Apostles' Creed which is one that we have also used in the rhythms and routines of our worship and prayer life as a community. And those are the two that kind of set uh, most before the church as the creeds. I joked with Kyle, this is a total aside, but when we were planning this and I was showing him some of the artwork that our creative team uh, so beautifully did for this series, and I joked and I said, uh, I'm going to tell people to slide into social when we're announcing this one day to just put a picture of Scott Sapp up. Did I, only two people got it? Mia's from Florida. You should get it. The Creed, the band. Anyways, super dated myself there, I guess. Uh, too young of a crowd. But not that Creed, not the musical Creed. If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't waste your time by listening to it later. Okay, just move on and just enjoy those years of your life that you can get back by not having had to listen to them. Andrew's going to disagree, maybe. But we talk about this, the creed, and it's something that we confess. And if you're interested in more of this, this is not a huge announcement time, but I just want to give a quick plug that if you want to know more about how we developed this and how we sort of got to these things and what I mean by Nicene and Constantinople and all of these things, uh, we are going to teach a short four to five week class this summer. It's going to be on Monday nights, what week that starts, but it'll run in from somewhere in the middle of June to the middle of July figuring all that out. But we're going to talk about the history of the church and kind of the early ways that this was formed and how we arrived. It's not going to be just on the creed, but kind of socio-political uh, nature and tensions that the church was kind of formed and raised in. So if you're interested in that, let us know. We would love to have you be a part of that. But we're going to continue this morning in this topic, what it is that we believe. And we've gone through our first two sections and we find ourselves in the third section talking about the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and Son, He is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. The section may be the part for most of us that I think we find ourselves uh, ignoring. It's not even that we don't believe in it. Sure, we believe in the Holy Spirit. Maybe not in the same way we have an understanding or a grasp that we have with the Father and the Son. We go through those two parts, yeah, 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 Father and Son, we got that, Holy Spirit, weird, move on. And then maybe in this last section next week, we may have some wrestlings, right? We believe in the church, and we may go, ooh, what part of the church, though, right? And what's this whole bit about Catholic? Am I, I thought we were Protestants. What's going on here? And how do you pronounce that word apostolic? Where does it come from? I loved when we first started doing this creed. Like, there was a silent pause throughout the room when we would get to that word, and now, like, everybody just <laughs> rolls with it. It's beautiful. But when we first put it on the screen, it would be like, we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, and then we would move on. And now everybody gets it. But we're going to talk about those things next week in detail. But this week, the Holy Spirit, I think for most of us, we just kind of say it and move on, and we don't even think about it. For a lot of us, if we're honest, we don't even engage with a topic like the Holy Spirit. I think that's probably for two different reasons. You know me, I'm always going to kind of offer you the two ends of the poles and understand that it's a spectrum somewhere in between there. But I think that the reality of it is, for most of us in the church, 
you either operated on one end of the spectrum and you now maybe are in some sense jaded or burned by that or maybe a little confused, left wanting some more understanding or knowledge on it. But you grew up and the Holy Spirit was completely overemphasized. You understood theologically the Father and the Son, but like the Holy Spirit was where the good stuff happened. And you needed the Holy Spirit to have a real encounter and worship. And, and that was kind of where, and like it was like all about Holy Spirit. And you lived there, playing my cards on the table a little bit here. That, that was a lot of the context I come from. And I'll go ahead and play my cards now. That, that part of that charismatic is still very alive and well within me. So I'm excited to talk about this. But that, that, that was the existence. It was all about Holy Spirit and, and little language about cross and death and sacrifice and grief. We lived there. Or you might live on the other end of the spectrum and like Holy Spirit was the weird uncle, the cousin that we collectively as a family just chose not to really talk about. Like, oh, well, we know we say it in the Bible. Like we all recognize that he may or may not show up to the family dinner, but we're just not going to really like acknowledge anything that exists around him. And we focus most of our time, probably if you're in that context, it was largely around Jesus. And so there's these two kind of polar extremes or interactions we have with the Holy Spirit. And admittedly so, the Holy Spirit is probably the most vague. There, there's a longer progression of a theology that, takes, that happens to get to a theology of the Holy Spirit. You see this thing that I think is really kind of cool, uh, where in the Old Testament you really have a strong sense of God the Father... There's a vague hinting to the Son, and, and we know this, right, because then we see it in the lens of Jesus, there's a fulfillment through the Old Testament, and then in the Old Testament, it's, or in the New Testament, it's kind of this thing continues. You understand the Father and the Son, and there's all this like vague hinting at or kind of understanding of the Spirit. The word Trinity doesn't exist in the Bible, like these are the types of things that we talk about, right, like we've heard these statements before. And so it took longer, and even in the Nicene Creed and the, the Constantinople Creed, like it took four or five hundred years for the church to collectively to kind of go, hey, this is a theology we agree upon. Where the Father, you know, you can go back 14,000, 17,000 years before Jesus is ever on earth, and like Yahweh, the Father, God of Israel, Father of Isaac, you know, Abraham, Jacob, Moses, like that we've always gotten. The Holy Spirit took a little longer. It, it, it took some time to wrap around and he continued to reveal himself. There's vague references from Jesus. And so it's understandable that we would maybe grasp well what we mean by the Father. More polarity for you here. But the, you know with the Father, like maybe you had a great father, maybe you had a terrible father. Either way, you had an earthly father in some sense or you wouldn't be in this room. Somehow you arrive to this point in place. And so there is this thing where we're able to grasp and wrap our mind around God the Father. We're able to wrap our mind around God, this divine being, and whatever your relationship is with that and how you filter that through your own context and your wounding, your own doubts and struggles. Like we, we can wrestle with that. That concept is shared across multiple religions. Jesus, the Son... Again, whether that is the humanity side of it, the human side of Jesus that you really resonate with, if you still kind of want to lean into like the Jesus is my friend, my companion, the one beside me, like there is a, a, a sliding scale there where like you maybe really grasp that or you really get his like divine side, but like we understand Jesus or we wouldn't be in this room calling ourselves Christians. 
But the Holy Spirit? Like, what? How? You ever try to explain it to a kid? Like, you start talking about water and vapor and, like, well, there's ice and then there's liquid and then there's gas. And you can't really see it, but, like, it's there and it exists and it turns. Like, there's all these metaphors and they all break down really quickly with the Holy Spirit. We oftentimes can do a little bit of damage, like, trying to put metaphor to it because it is, it's hard to understand and grasp. And that's okay. But it doesn't mean that it's impossible it just means that there is space that, like, it is vague. This is another quick aside to just kind of put a, a pin in that, and, and then we'll move on from this idea. In preaching class, when I was in seminary, we would always have to critique sermons afterwards. And, and critique sounds harsher, but it was a good moment to kind of dissect and, and uh, like, break down a sermon. You could have done this. Like, why did you do this? And a lot of times it was just questions, understanding. It's a beautiful way to learn how to preach. It honestly was. But I always laugh because every sermon, almost without question, you could always be like, like if somebody in the back, you all know this kid that you had in class that just like wanted to ask the question that like no one could answer. And they'd be like, well, why didn't you preach about the Holy Spirit more? Like, the, like there's just this sense or this way. It's like it's hard to talk about a lot of times. Like every sermon we preach outside of one directly about the Holy Spirit, you could argue like, well, it could have probably been a little more Trinitarian. You could have talked about the Spirit more. We understand it's like this thing that activates us, it, it moves us, it animates our life, but it's hard to talk about. And so oftentimes we skip by it. And yet every Sunday we proclaim that the Holy Spirit is to be worshipped and glorified with the Father and the Son. And we are forced in some sense every time we proclaim that to sort of ask the question, do I believe that? Do I actually believe that the Lord, that the Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life? Because what I would like to contend with you this morning and my conviction on my own personal life is that our uh, difficulty to wrap our minds what it is that the Holy Spirit intends to do within us and through us actually is a great travesty to the church when we ignore it. Because what we're going to see in our passage this morning, I think it is the Holy Spirit that does usher us into this life of resurrection, of joy, goodness, righteousness. That God would intend to kind of graft us into his being and existence by his spirit. And when we ignore it, and when we push it to the polarities, when we push it to the extremes, we're missing the great gift that Jesus tells us. And I wrestle with this just as much as you do, and I think if we're all honest, we're all confounded by the fact that Jesus would say, it is better for you that I leave and that the Helper would come. The Holy Spirit would come to you. I'll be honest, right now, knowing that, standing up and making this theological statement, there's part of me that's like, yeah, but Jesus, if you could like come back and be in person, like I, I'd kind of take that. I, I, I think I would rather have that, knowing what I know. Like, I know that's not the answer I'm supposed to say, but that's kind of like my human. It would be much easier. But we kind of have to take Jesus at his word. This life, this thing, this being into, caught up, a part of the righteousness of God is what we're at in Romans chapter 8. 
If you are familiar with Romans, and our passage this morning is just a few short verses out of Romans 8, verses 9, 10, and 11. But just before this section, just before chapter 8, is Paul's famous kind of monologue lamenting that he wants to do what's right. He wants to do what's good, and yet he knows deep within him there is something that causes him to do what he does not want to do. He tries. He knows what he's supposed to do, and yet he finds himself oftentimes unable to do those things. He says, thanks be to God for Jesus. And then he goes on to talk and unpack the life of the Spirit that every believer is invited into that invites us into and kind of begins to like catch us up into the life of God that Paul is so desperately trying to get at. Romans 7, what he's saying is, I can't do it on my own. I can never achieve this with my own kind of like just pull myself up from the bootstraps mentality that it takes something else, something outside of him. And he introduces us to the gift and the life of the spirit of Christ that we find within us. So hear these words read. Three verses out of Romans. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the spirit who lives in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. The uh, statements that Paul is trying to get us at here about what it means to be a follower of Jesus is where he starts chapter verse 9. He's picking up in this argument in chapter 8 of this idea that it is the spirit that allows us to do these things. He's wanting to say, if then, you, however, you are different than this. You are not caught up in the ways of sin. You are not obsessed with and compelled by the ways of the world. You, however, being a believer and follower of Jesus, you are given the spirit of life and life abundant, joy, goodness, and most importantly in his verse 9, righteousness, glory, life in the kingdom, a part of and caught up into God's goodness and abundance. Made one, righteousness in the Jewish mind, right? Like this would have been this idea that they were in right standing. They were in community with God because of Jesus, because the Spirit was in them, moving them, causing them to do the work of the kingdom. And so he poses it in the negative. Instead of giving us a positive of that statement, you then, having the life of the Spirit, know that if you did not have the Spirit then you would not know Jesus. But in a beautiful pastoral way, Paul is coming alongside of these believers, wrestling with what it means to live into the kingdom, to follow Jesus. And he's saying, but you do know Jesus. I almost hear him saying, like, so, so have confidence. Be, be aware of the fact that you can do this. 
Because the Spirit of God lives and reigns within you. And so he then tells them that there's two ways that this happens. There's two things for this. There's the present life that you find yourself in, verse 10. And there is a life that you are invited to live and to participate in because the indwelling of the Spirit is for here and now. And then he wants to say that then there also is a promise hope of life in verse 11. It is a present and future reality that we are invited into in the life of God. That Christ, by his spirit in us, the Holy Spirit, God's spirit, we live a life now that is righteous and allows us to step into communion with God, the creator of heaven and earth. And God's spirit, the very spirit that animated Christ back into life, that resurrected him from the grave that we're celebrating in this great 50 days, God's spirit lives within us. Now you see the, the, the Trinity starting to take form here, right? The Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Paul is getting at this in Romans 8. Verse 10, the spirit of Christ in you and the very Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead also in you. This is the Spirit caught up in this movement that's happening inside of the Trinity. It's being given to us and inviting us in to be caught up into this movement. I think the Trinitarian nature of God is a beautiful thing because it helps us to begin to see that the way of following Jesus in many ways in following after God and being a part of the kingdom of heaven here on earth is Trinitarian. It's revelation, it's understanding, it's grace, it's mercy, it's power, it's action, it's abundance, it's joy, it's grief, it's sorrow. It's all of these things always kind of like mixing in together and a part of one another. There's an ongoing and ever-flowing like kind of mingling of God that we see in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we're invited into that as followers. I would say this, that in the person of Jesus Christ, we find a God who seeks to bring us into the life of God. The very thing that Jesus came to do was to bring us into the life and abundance of God the Father. Think of the parables here, uh, the lost son, like in Jesus, we have God going deep into the, law, into the wilderness, the exile, to bring us in and to bring us home into the life of the Father. And in Jesus' doing so, we see the Father running towards us, allowing us to take in this perfect relationship. Because what happens is as Jesus' spirit ascends to us, animates us, dwells within us, we then are invited into this perfect relationship of Jesus and the Father, the Son and the Father. This relationship between Jesus and the Father by the Spirit dwelling within us becomes our own relationship with the Father. It gently overwhelms us and overcomes our brokenness, leading us into a path of healing and wholeness allowing us to stand firm and to become aware of our standing as sons and daughters of God alongside of Jesus. This is the work of the Spirit. As the Spirit unites Jesus and the Father together, so too does the Spirit unite us into the life of Jesus, into the life of God. This, we need to believe this. 
and allows us to walk into this triune experience of following Jesus. Let me explain a little bit more what I mean by this. I think it's easy to read something like Romans 8 and then begin to expect that this should happen in a moment. To read something like Romans 8 and to begin to question and wonder and wrestle with, well, why is this not true of me? And probably a little bit more so uh, in our self-righteousness, both honest and in sinfulness, right? Why is this not true of the church in a deeper and like larger way? For all of the ugliness of the church that we know and see, we also know that this has to be true because it's true in our own lives of following Jesus. And so we begin to ask these questions of like, why am I not experiencing this life, this life abundant? Why is it not easy yoke for me to follow after Jesus? And I think it's because we begin to see and know and understand that it doesn't happen in a moment, but it happens in life and its experience of it as the Holy Spirit comes and meets us in tender and gentle ways. One of the things I'm convinced about of the theology of the Holy Spirit is that like the Holy Spirit will never force his way into our lives. The Holy Spirit will never kind of like demand that we do something. Instead, I think that the Holy Spirit operates much more in gentle invitation. Quiet offerings to step into this life. I think it's why for thousands of years the church has collectively prayed, Come Holy Spirit. It's one of the oldest prayers we pray, and we do not pray it because Jesus needs, or God needs, or the Holy Spirit needs us in some way to allow him to come onto earth. We all know, and our theology is strong enough to be well aware of the fact that the Holy Spirit is present here in this room, whether we say, come Holy Spirit, or not. But the beauty and the gift of the Holy Spirit it's that it's a gentle invitation into this deep life and he will never force us into it and so we pray come holy spirit in a way of saying come and dwell allow us to be caught up into this allow us to be a part of this allow us to be tied into god and humanity intertwined in a way that it's supposed to be i love this uh and it took me a long time to learn this, it's just in the last few years, but the Irish like theologians and mystics uh, of old referred to the Holy Spirit as a wild goose. And they did so because there is a saying, right, that it, that's a wild goose chase. It is futile to chase a wild goose. We don't have quite as, familiarity or, uh, as much of a familiarity with wild geese as uh, maybe those living in Northern Ireland would have or those that maybe find themselves in country settings. But the point is, and what they would have wanted you to acknowledge or understand, is that you do not chase geese. But geese seem to happen upon you, or you happen upon them. And when you do so, it's a beautiful moment, if you're into geese and stuff like that. <laughs> But what I think we can translate that from the Irish theologian's gift to us is understanding that the Holy Spirit is the same way. Another way to think about it, the Spirit referred to in Scripture as ruach, breath, wind. 
I've never sailed boats or really been one to fly kites, but the reality of it is is you can't decide to just go sail a boat or fly a kite if there is no wind. And you cannot conjure up wind or success in either of those activities enough so that it can be a fun time. If there is no wind, the kite will not fly. If there is no wind, the boat will not sail. And in some ways, throughout the history of the church, what we have learned and to begin to understand is the Holy Spirit operates this kind of way. And what we are called to is not to, in our own faithfulness, in our own, like, just kind of excitement, is to conjure up the Holy Spirit. We do not fervently pray hard enough so that the Holy Spirit will envelop us in this space. Now, the great invitation for thousands of years as followers of Jesus is to come and to be ready to participate. And to go where the Spirit leads. And we pray, come Holy Spirit. We do not chase the wild goose, we let it come to us. And when we do so, we do so with excitement and with joy. So it is not a completely and 100% totally passive moment. It is this thing that we find ourselves waiting for and expecting, longing for and desiring. And as the Holy Spirit comes, and as the wind blows, you will find yourself caught up in these moments where you do begin to experience the divine and resurrected life in a way that is just unexplainable. That moves you, changes you, forms you, shapes you in ways that will not allow you to go backwards. I think if we are in this room following Jesus, some of you have had a taste of what that experience is like. For others of you, you may like have deep and profound moments that you can recall again and again when that wind has blown and the Holy Spirit has overwhelmed you and changes you. For all of my love of philosophy and theology, for as much as I will sit and debate different random topics about whatever it is that you want to debate, I'm becoming more and more convinced as I get older that it is the experience of the divine life and the life of the Spirit that actually makes us follow Jesus. And in a wanting and needing world, it is the church's task to invite people not into cognitive ascent but instead to invite them into a life of the Spirit where they experience that overwhelming power, joy, and goodness of the resurrection life. My hope and my prayer for us as a community in a wanting and waiting world in a city like Birmingham is that we can be a church where people can walk into these doors, can walk into our homes, can sit around our tables and find themselves not being taught or, or given something that allows them to walk away with knowledge, but they're being invited into and caught up into a resurrected life, an encounter with the divine resurrection life of Jesus, that they'd be caught up and overwhelmed by and encountered with the Holy Spirit and all that it is that we find ourselves doing. And we don't do this uh, by just sort of forcing it on people in the same way that the Holy Spirit cannot force himself upon us. We can't force it upon other people. Instead, what we can do is we can find ourselves being given over to the practices and the ways of Jesus. Someone that was fully caught up into the life of God. And I think as we do so and as we have these experiences, what begins to happen is we become so engulfed 
in the presence of God continually, moment after moment, not one time, but it's a progression. And as we do so, I think our life begins to become so intertwined with God's life that as people encounter us, they begin to have a hard time understanding where I end and God begins. In the same way that we have a hard time fully comprehending and understanding where Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the Father ends and the other begins. Whose work is whose? The Spirit bonding them together allows them to kind of all operate together, and we are invited into that same thing. With one another, submitting, giving our lives to each other, in the same way that God, the Father, and the Son are submitting and giving their lives and deferring glory to the Spirit, we do the same thing, and in so doing, following after Jesus, we begin to be caught up into the life of the Spirit. We've had these experiences. The saints of old that lived this way, grandmas, uncles, cousins, people that have lived longer than us, that have gone before us, that we can point to and say, like, I have a lot of questions about the church, but, like, Jesus is real because I encountered him through that person. And the great invitation of the church is that we get to be that to the world around us, inviting people into an encounter with Jesus as the Spirit animates and dwells and propels us into that. So to ignore our deep belief and conviction of the Holy Spirit is to ignore this gift and this invitation. So we have to find ourselves stilling our hearts, quieting our minds, slowing down, posturing ourselves daily, weekly, monthly in places that we sit quietly and allow the Holy Spirit to begin to change us. And in so doing, it is my conviction and my hope and my prayer for myself that I can begin to be caught up in that, a flame for God, overwhelmed by and consumed by God's life and goodness and mercy, that I could be caught up into the righteousness and glory of God through Jesus' death and resurrection and his spirit's invitation to me and indwelling in me. And each Sunday as we come to the communion table and as the band comes up, we have the moment and the opportunity to be reminded of what the life of Jesus was like what was done on our behalf in order that we might have this righteousness, that we might have access to this goodness. And we're reminded that these are these still moments, that these are these quiet moments where we have the opportunity to stop and to pause and to ask the Holy Spirit to come, to be near to us and to change us, to form us, to shape us more and more into the life of Jesus. So as you take your cup, you peel back your layers, and you hold on to what is the representation of bread, we're reminded that God sent His Son to be broken for us in order that we might be sustained and propelled into life and life abundant. So take and eat. reminded of
Christ's blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins in order that we might find wholeness in the face of brokenness, that we might find healing on the path and the journey that is life in order that we might step into the righteousness of God to take and drink. Father, we thank you and we praise you that we can come to this space and we ask as your church has asked for millennia, God, that you would come, Holy Spirit, that you would come and dwell among us, that you would come and change us, that here as we gather together, that you would allow us to experience your resurrection lives, that we would encounter you and be changed by it. So in our simple acts of worship, and our simple acts of marking this time, week in and week out, do the thing that you've promised to do for us, Lord. Come, dwell, change, animate, propel us into the deep and abundant life of God. In Jesus' name we pray.